Hello and welcome to Chicago Audio Works, the podcast from the University of Chicago Press. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Tim Taylor, the author of The Sounds of Capitalism, Advertising Music and the Conquest of Culture. Tim Taylor is professor in the Department of Ethnomusicology and Musicology at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's the author of Global Pop, World Music, World Markets, Strange Sounds, Music, Technology, and Culture, and Beyond Exoticism, Western Music in the World. Tim Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks. Let's talk about the earliest days of, music, of radio in the 1920s. Who decided how music and which music was going to get on the air? It's a complicated story in a way because early radio started with hobbyists who would put on a recording or they would play the violin. And then when radio became more commercial by the 20s, uh, you had only one radio station, uh, the National Broadcasting Company. Um, uh, and at the same time, you also had advertisers who were producing a lot of radio shows. Um, and it was a complicated uh, sort of dance that NBC and advertisers did between you know, figuring out uh, this is the kind of music that we want on the air, this is the kind of music that's going to sell the product that we want to sell, or this is the kind of music that's going to represent our young and not very reputable industry. Um, so there, there were then and always conflicts about you know, who, who is in control and what kind of music is best to put on the air. That's actually a really interesting way to start the conversation because you know here in the 21st century, I mean, radio is, I mean, everybody knows about radio, but if you go back to the 1920s, it was largely an unproven medium, and I guess it would take, you know, kind of like the person who first ate the oyster, probably take an advertiser would be pretty brave to start putting some of their money off of print and moving it into music and radio. Yeah, it was a big risk. I mean, the, the main trade, trade journal in the early 20th century was called Printer's Inc., which gives you some idea of what people thought advertising was about. Um, and, you know, it was, a tra it was a print medium. I mean, people talked about billboards and other things or some other sorts of advertising, but mainly it was a print medium. And it was really hard for advertisers to figure out what to do with radio, what to do with sound, because they thought that sound was much more intrusive than a print advertisement where, you know, if you didn't like it on the, on the newspaper or the magazine page, you could just turn the page. But having sound come into people's living rooms selling goods was thought to be anathema by a lot of people. And the idea of trying to convert notions of print advertising to sound advertising was really complicated. So in the early days, you find lots of people talking about um, music can be the headline for your, uh, for your advertisement. And there was all these analogies made with print um, to sound because people just didn't know how to conceptualize sound as something that could sell. Uh, did audiences, actually I guess, did the advertisers have any idea who was actually listening to, to these shows. I guess conversely, did radio stations have an idea? So if we think today, if I were to go into a company and say, if you advertise on my show, this is the audience that I reach, and these are the people that are buying your products. I imagine that really early on, this was kind of a terra incognita. Nobody really knew who was listening, and conversely, what kind of music they were interested in. Yep, that's exactly right. There was a lot of consternation about you know, who was listening. We're spending all this money on these musicians and all these and, you know, engineers, and we don't know what we're getting. Or, whereas, again, with print, people knew, you know, we know that New York Times sells, you know, X many tens of thousands of copies in New York City or in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. But with radio, nobody really knew. Uh, so very early on in the, early, in the beginning of radio in the 1920s, uh, there were contests, there were giveaways, you know, write into us and, give, and we'll give you a free recipe or we'll give you a free, um, you know, piece of candy. And, it, and people thought that this was a generous thing to do on the part of advertisers, but actually it was a way to try to figure out who was listening and where they were listening. But also it was a way to try to figure out something about the audience. So early letters from fans were analyzed very closely in terms of quality of paper, quality of penmanship, 
um, a amount of education that you could discern, like was the grammar, you know, good in this in these writings? Um, was the grammar poor? Was spelling good? Was spelling poor? All as a way of trying to figure out, you know, who who is our audience? And then of course there are lots of polls about listeners pre listener preferences. What what do you want to listen to? Um, and uh, uh, polling in a sophisticated way like we currently think of it didn't really exist. And li listener polls in particular were very, very crude at the beginning. I want to talk about one of the acts. We're going to talk about different <coughs> acts that, during this history, but uh, the first one that I really caught my eye from the late 1920s were the Clico Club, Club Eskimos. Yep. you got to explain, who are the Clico Club? <laughs> I've got to say this. <coughs> Clico Club Eskimos, and what was so unique <coughs> about them? Uh, Clico Club was a ginger ale that I think was manufactured in Massachusetts, if I remember correctly. And they were an early radio sponsor in the 19, in, I think starting in 1927, they had an act called the Clico Club Eskimos. They had a sort of a cherubic Eskimo that was their, their trademark. And they decided that the best way to, to promote their brand, their ginger ale, was to hire a band of banjos. Because they thought that uh, the, the plucking sounds of banjos that, uh, captured the effervescence of their ginger ale. Um, so they had four or five banjo players. They had, and they had some uh, accompanying instruments too. But mostly it was banjos, and uh, this became a, a, an iconic early radio show. Uh, iconic to the extent that it was actually revived in the in the fifties, and that's how, that's how I how we can hear them today. Nobody was recording their shows back back in the twenties because recording was very cumbersome. Um, but the musicians rec made recordings, made commercial recordings, so you can hear what the musicians sounded like apart from the radio show. Old scripts are available. Um, so you can see what the script sounded like, and you could see how um, you know, the, the advertising copy was worked into uh, the pr presentation of the musicians um, and the songs that they're going to play. But uh, and they dressed them up like Eskimos. Yeah, they had these uh, white costumes that were supposed to represent, you know, what what Eskimos, you know, <laughs> what, what what Inuit people look like. Um, you know, they're all white guys. The, the main, the leader of the band was a guy named Harry Reeser, who was an unbelievable banjo virtuoso. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you know this this was the idea you know that somehow that this music would would convey the effervescence of their ginger ale better than anything else now when we talk about radio and advertising and figure how to make money off of it you mentioned early on that NBC during the early 20s was really the radio network but William Paley came along uh, the man who founded the Columbia Broadcasting System better known as CBS and he saw it as a different way what is it that William Paley saw about radio and music and advertising that made him different than David Sarnoff who was running NBC well, NBC made its money because it was owned by Westinghouse and AT&T and General Electric. So the way that they made profits was to sell radios. And the way to sell radios, they thought, was to get people to, to want to hear what was broadcast on the radios. Uh, but the Columbia Broadcasting System did not own any, you know, did not have any interest in, in uh, radio parts or AT&T, which is how in the days before um, satellites, that's how this radio signal was conveyed, you know, great distances. So Paley's idea was that what you sold was not a program or not radios, but what you sold was audiences, and this this was a revolutionary idea. I have to, I you know, as much as most of us would say we hate commercial broadcasting, uh, at least I do. Um, uh, Paley figured out that um, if you could sell audiences to advertisers and guarantee advertisers that they would have a particular audience at a particular time in a particular place, then you could actually go. Uh, you, you could actually fare much better than NBC did, which couldn't make those guarantees. Their system allowed local stations to keep the primetime slots if they wanted and put their own X on because primetime was the best slot, even in the 20s and 30s. Um, Paley figured out that if he could entice his uh, affiliate stations to 
surrender prime time or to you know to entice them to um, let CBS have the best slots, um, then CBS could go back to an advertiser and say, "We can guarantee you, you know, Metropolitan New York from Saturday eight o'clock to nine o'clock," and NBC just couldn't do that. Um, this is pretty well known to broadcast historians, but um, I found some archival evidence that that talks about this, about how people in the advertising industry are complaining about, you know, NBC, you know, they don't have their act together yet, you know, unlike CBS, uh, because. You know they can't guarantee the audience that CBS could do, and now it's it's fairly common in, for people who study the advertising industry and, and broadcasting to talk about the the audience as the commodity. Uh, but that was a revolutionary idea of Paley. He was really a kind of uh, a business genius in that regard. How did the depression affect music mm -hmm. on radio? I guess mm -hmm. I should specify. Well, I actually found something in the NBC archive, which is uh, in Wisconsin, where they actually say no mention should be made on the air of uh, bank failures or the economic downturn. So the radio industry just sort of went, went happily along. Uh, some major figures in the industry, like Bruce Barton, who was one of the founders of what, came, what became known as BBDO, he said that the Depression didn't affect them at all. Um, that, you know, we, he, he writes, we hardly knew there was a Depression. Other people I've read said that, you know, the Depression did hurt. Um, what uh, did hurt the broadcasting industry? What really happened is that you you saw that the, the, the gingerliness with which advertisers treated the audience, the radio audience, kind of disappear. You know, the fears of selling selling goods in the home pretty much went out the window because they were desperate to sell goods. So pitches got stronger. Um, musical acts, I don't know if it changed the nature of musical acts, but you did see during the Depression the rise of the radio jingle which was a massively, massively important sales device in, uh, in advertising, uh, which was you know, sort of a hard sell pitch, but you know, wrapped in, a, in an easy to swallow musical message. I would have thought it absurd before I read your book to even ask this question, but I've learned from this book and some other things that there are people out there who don't know what a jingle is. So can you give me, a, I guess, a quick thumbnail sketch of what a jingle is? It's a short, happy, snappy, Hopefully unforgettable, at least unforgettable. Ho hopefully unforgettable by the people who write them. Um, tune that mentions some attributes of a product, and sometimes not much more than that. Um, was it controversial when they started? I mean, you also talked about the fact that we went to the depression. All of a sudden, the gloves kind of came off, and pro uh, you know, stuff had to be moved, and the jingles were kind of seen as a little bit more of a hard sell. Yeah, it was, but it wrapped up in often a really, really catchy tune. Um, so it, there was something of a craze for jingles when they first uh, hit the scene. There was something before musical jingles um, in the 19th century uh, that, were, that were just verse, not, uh, not music. Um, and you could probably trace the history of people singing, you know, singing to sell goods you know, as far back as you want. The, the oldest reference I've ever seen goes back to the 14th century in, in France. Um, you know, people, street cries, you know, people just selling goods and walking down the street and, you know, extolling the virtues of the goods that they're selling. But the jingle as we think of it um, has, has a, a fairly short history in regional and local markets, but the national jingle really didn't take off in this country until the very late 30s. What, uh, was there a jingle zero nationally where you can say, okay, this was the first song that really kind of started the jingle as far as a national advertising craze? Yeah, well, there was one for Wheaties in 1926, um, but it didn't start the craze. The one that really started the cra craze was uh, in 1939 for Pepsi-Cola, where two uh, uh, songwriter, lyricists and uh, songwriters uh, walked in cold to the office of the president of Pepsi, and they had a portable phonograph under their arm, and they played a jingle that they had written for him, and he bought it on the spot. Um, but in 1939, you couldn't rent airtime in segments less than 30 minutes. And you know, in a 60-second or 30-second jingle, you couldn't do anything with it. 
So the president of Pepsi found uh, sort of a down on its luck radio station in New Jersey that would actually rent them just a, you know, a short amount of airtime. And he got the jingle on the air that way, and it became so popular that the, the networks uh, across the country began to start to air commercials that were short. Um, and, but this jingle was hugely, hugely successful. I mean, it was translated into 55 languages. Uh, you could buy uh, sort of popular recordings of it. Um, my book has a, uh, my book's website will have a, a, a recording of a, sort of a popular version of the jingle. It's called Swinging the Jingle, so it's sort of a swing version from the early 40s. Um, I found a cartoon in Time Magazine um, from the 40s where <laughs> Uh, a couple of obvious, like, Soviet people, there's an onion dome out the window, and these Soviets are listening to the Pepsi-Cola jingle on the radio, and the husband says to the wife, I think it's their national anthem. <laughs> 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 uh, or, or national folk song, or anyway, yeah, something like that. It's very funny. So it was a massively popular uh, jingle that Pepsi used for a very long time, but because the jingle mentioned that the price of their cola was uh, five cents when Pepsi finally raised the price, they got rid of the jingle, but uh, of that particular jingle. But they used it for a very long time. You know, I know there was, there was that crossover here that they had that. But when you say the 1940s, the first jingle that pops into my mind was this Chiquita Banana song. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that one? That was the next big one. Um, the first one for Pepsi, uh, you know, ignited this craze. Everybody wanted to have a jingle because it worked so well for Pepsi. Um, so the next one is for Chiquita Banana, which people today would might still remember because Chiquita has used it for years. Their website, website still has it. Um, and that one was not only catchy, but uh, it conveyed information to Americans not used to buying tropical fruit about what, you know, about not putting bananas in the refrigerator, which to this day people know. Um, those lyrics have been changed over the years because everybody learned how not to put bananas <laughs> in the refrigerator. But that was another phenomenally successful one that, that got used even longer than the Pepsi one because uh, it didn't mention the price. Uh, they, they did update the lyrics and, and the sort of the, the style of that jingle over the years, but they kept the melody, you know, which, which people, many people, I would say from the age of 30 and above probably still know. So we learned from Pepsi that if you're going to have a jingle, you know, make sure that the price isn't listed so you can continue to kind of work through the system. <laughs> yep. Uh, after the war, there ended up being, I mean, I can understand from a jingle, apart from the fact that musically it's hitting something subconscious that people want to hear, but also if, if you're singing something, you're delivering copy. You're telling people the unique selling proposition of your product, why they should buy it, et cetera. But you talk about in your book that there ended up being kind of, I want to say, a bit of a change in advertising, really where they started to look at it less from selling the, I don't want to say the qualities of the product as far as like unique selling proposition, but starting to sell mood and theme. Could you talk a little about where this came from? I thought they would have done this a lot earlier because that's what films did really from the start of sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of the surprising things that I discovered. Um, and so I wrote a whole chapter about you know, music and mood and advertising because it didn't come in right away, which is very strange because people in film, right, even before uh, sound film, you know, like silent film with a pianist in the theater, uh, people were worrying about mood because you, know, you didn't want to have happy music playing while the heroine gets shot or something. <laughs> so you, know, you had to make sure that the music and what was on the screen matched. But in advertising, it was really all about animating the product, like we talked about with respect to the Clico Club Eskimos. Um, and I've read all the trade press uh, about music and radio going back to the 20s and you know, some before. And there's only two or three references to music and mood before World War II, which is really kind of astonishing. So it's very clear that people just assumed that a jingle or music advertising, advertising was going to be happy and upbeat, and that was it. And nobody, obviously nobody had to say that. But there was no consideration about you know, degrees of happiness or, you know, we want, we want joyous as opposed to, uh, you know, mere happy, you know. There's nothing like that at all. And when TV comes along after World War II, 
people in radio, like they didn't know what to do with uh, 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 with radio advertising when, pr when print was dominant, they didn't really know what to do with TV either. So people in radio simply conceptualized it as uh, a television, as um, um, radio with pictures. So you didn't find music changing, you didn't find jingles, the style of jingles changing any more than they had changed before. And then, but by the late 50s, you finally get people starting to say, hey, why don't we start, you know, like using the sort of emotional power that music can have to sell product. But not until the very late 1950s, which is really quite uh, surprising. And it came in not through the professional, you know, Hollywood or New York City uh, jingle composers. It came in through classically trained musicians um, who were used to thinking of music and emotion all along, as, as were, you know, other musicians too. Um, so people like Mitch Lee, who trained at uh, the Yale School of Music under uh, the German composer Paul Hindemith, uh, Roy Eaton, who's a, a fam uh, who's a who was very famous in the industry, but it was a classical pianist, and uh, Mitch Miller, who died recently at the age of you know 90, 98 or something. Uh, all of them ha had classical training, and all of them said we need to figure out how to use you know the emotional power of music to sell goods, and that that was a new thing in the late nineteen fifties. Um, so you have you know, music and emotion going along with visuals on TV for the first time. The, the style of music still didn't change that much. It was still sort of tracking what was going on in popular music. But music was being conceptualized as something that could um, be used to sell product in this different kind of way. Obviously, popular show out right now is Mad Men, looking at advertising in the 1960s. Uh, let's pretend that we are back then, and we wanted to come up with a jingle. The guys at Sterling Cooper wanted, wanted to do a jingle. Can you talk about what sort of professional infrastructure existed around Madison Avenue during the time of Mad Men if an advertising company wanted a jingle? Uh, well, uh, let me first say that the people I interviewed who were in the business then say that Mad Men gets it absolutely right, uh, which is interesting. So um, uh, for you know, those, those of us who are interested in the industry, it's, it's good to know that you know, that show has a good representation of what things were like. Uh, what they would have done in that era was to uh, engage uh, uh, what was known as a jingle house, a music production company that produced jingles. Um, and in that era, budgets were, I wouldn't say unlimited, but they, they were pretty much unlimited. You know? So you could actually hire, if you were, if you were a composer, you could hire you know, a composer in a jingle house. You could hire a 20-piece, 30-piece orchestra. You could hire big-name musicians, um, singers, um, uh, instrumentalists, and they would record your jingle, usually fairly quickly. Uh, and a campaign in that era would take a while. Uh, today, people will turn around uh, music in sometimes just a day. But in that era, you might take a year to develop you know, a, a long-term campaign. So the, the very famous um, commercial called Hilltop, which is the one that people know as, I'd like to teach the world to sing, that took about a year um, to, you know, to get on the air from the moment of conception to a year. So you had immense amount of money and immense amount of talent. I mean, many of the greatest musicians in New York City were, were working in sessions, make, you know, recording jingles um, as instrumentalists and as singers. Uh, Kenny Burrell, my colleague here at UCLA, who's you know, a great, great jazz guitarist, did a lot of commercial gigs back in that era. And um, uh, there'd be a lot of back and forth between Sterling Cooper and the, the, the jingle house about, you know, we want this kind of sound, we want that kind of sound. They would be, in that era, they would be starting to talk about affect a little bit. Uh, affect or you know emotion, affect is the more technical word we use in music. Um, probably not a whole lot. Um, I think it would be more sort of by the seat of your pants, like you know that sound doesn't match up with the video, or, you know with the visuals. Today there's a very um, clear and complex vocabulary for for d various moods. I mean somebody will say I, I want I don't want bittersweet, I want melancholy. I mean it's on that kind of level. In that area era, I don't think they were going that far. It was still sort of like 
happy, you know, this kind of happy or that kind of happy. Um, but there was there was a big infrastructure of um, jingle houses, and there was a, a big infrastructure of professional musicians who mainly worked in commercial uh, recording studios, recording studios, especially singers, because by the '60s you had uh, a singer who was known to have impeccable diction because advertising agen agencies wanted to make sure that uh, you know their copy was pronounced perfectly and especially the name of the brand was pronounced perfectly so you had zing uh, singers who were really you know had just unbelievably clear diction um, and who could sight read you know could could just walk into the studio and read something off the top of their heads because you know they're getting paid a lot of money and you don't want to spend you know three days in rehearsal you want to do it you know in one or two takes um, so you had a lot of you know, professional jingle singers, more than professional instrumentalists who you know do all different kinds of studio work, but professional jingle singers existed in the '60s. Let's talk, so I want to talk about you going through this whole question of professional, and it, it made me think part of the book where you're talking about there are a lot of people who are quite famous back who were doing jingles back then who don't like talking about it. Barry Manilow being the exception, who has no problem talking about it jingles. But the book ends with today, where the whole idea of I don't want to sell out to commercial. To commercials or advertising, it's almost as if it's done a complete 180, and it's in your book ends talking about how the advertising agency, in some ways, have moved from being selling products to becoming the gatekeepers of culture. So today, if I not necessarily want a jingle, or I wanted to get my music into an advertisement, how would that happen? Who would do it? Um, well, there's you know we have a new infrastructure <laughs> you know, today. Um, I mean, people's attitudes have changed because because of economic success necessity, which always changes people's attitudes about things. So in the, in the 50s and 60s, when rock and roll started to edge out uh, Broadway musical and the, and, and the old-fashioned uh, songwriter like Hoagy Carmichael, a lot of those guys started writing jingles because that was the way they could get work. So people like Arthur Lesser started a jingle company or you know, jingle house in the 50s and employed people like Ogden Nash and Hoagy Carmichael and other people uh, yeah, no, I just want to say the fact that Hoagy Carmichael, the man who wrote Stardust, which I think is one of the great pop songs of all time, yes. then ended up writing jingles during, at the end of his life is, I don't want to say sad, but definitely an interesting way you wouldn't think that's how Hoagy Carmichael ended up. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know how many he wrote in the end, but for them, you know, a, as, uh, you know, the, the, the song market, you know, the, the Tin Pan Alley song market started to dry, out, uh, dry up, they, you know, they needed to make a living. Um, and it, it, it's no different in our own time. So what happened was in 1996, the Congress passed the Communications Act of 1996, which made it legal to, for a single corporate entity to own more than one radio station in the same market. So one, one, one corporation can own six rock stations in Los Angeles if it wants to, or one corporation can own three country stations in Atlanta, or you know, four hip-hop stations in New York City, or whatever. Um, and that made it a lot harder for, radio, or for musicians to get on the radio because uh, what happened is that playlists got streamlined. You know, there's just less music, less different music being played on the air. And musicians' unwillingness to, to let their music be used for commercial ends dried up fairly quickly. Um, and so now um, there are music supervisors whose job is to uh, find music out there, you know, to place in commercials, to place in broadcasting, to place in, uh, in, um, in films. And this has become sort of a recent and powerful uh, profession. And you know, they're, they're professional, professional listeners, basically. Some of them have day jobs as DJs, like here at KCRW. Um, and they're kind of tastemakers whose job is to find those uh, you know, music that might sound good at you know, in the last three minutes of Grey's Anatomy or something like that. 
Um, and there are also agencies whose job is to do that. And record, record labels and publishing companies have offices now that help, help uh, place uh, music in commercials and place music in films and place music in TV shows. So is Tin Pan Alley that was in New York, is it now, can we think of it as Tin Pan Canyon? here in Los Angeles, has, has there been a locus, I guess, of that advertising power moved, has it moved to Los Angeles simply because there is such an entertainment complex here in this area? No, there's still a lot in New York, but there's a lot here too. Uh, New York was probably historically the capital of, of commercial music production, but the, the big New York uh, jingle houses, which they're not really called that anymore, but the big companies there will have an office out here. Um, some of them are based here, but um, it still exists in New York. Yeah. So, what did you want to accomplish writing this book? Well, partly, I wanted to tell you know the untold story because this is uh, a bunch of music, you know, a body of music that most people know but don't know anything about. Um, and I got intrigued because I wrote an article um, some years ago about world music and TV commercials because my first book was about world music, and I you know remained interested in the whole question of world music. And and in the course of writing that article, I interviewed a bunch of uh, musicians. All of them were happy to talk because nobody, nobody, you know, sort of outside of the world of advertising had talked to them before, and they were eager to talk and they were really interesting. And then I thought, well, you, gee, I guess I have a project here. Um, so partly I wanted to tell their story because um, nobody really knew it um, outside of the industry. Um, and partly I've long been interested in uh, American consumer culture, and I wanted to see what role advertising played in that, which has been often written about, but also, you know. More significantly for me, what role music plays in, in uh, you know, the, the production of consumption, really, and the, ch the changing role that music has played it's in the you know in the 90 years that I look at in this book. Were any of the people you interviewed kind of ambivalent about their contribution to it, or are they all pretty much you know, uh, apart from the fact that it did bring home the bacon and help me survive? And as a musician, I was really proud of the stuff I did. Only one person in my interviews, about 50 interviews, only one was uh, was really negative. Um, who got out of the business, you know, some years ago. Um, Everybody else, um, I mean, Barry Manilow told me, he said, this is how I learned, you know, the music business was by being a, a jingle composer, which he did for two years. Um, most people, either they were happy about it or they made their peace with it. I think some of them probably had harbored ideas of being a rock star or, you know, a Tin Pan Alley, you know, famous composer, uh, which didn't pan out for them. But um, they got to, they still got to be in music, which they wanted. Um, and you know, for de decades up until the 80s, there was a lot of money to, to work with the best musicians. Uh, so most of them actually, you know, liked doing it and continue to like doing it. Yeah, you're a professor of musicology. You're also a performer. You probably listen to tons of jingles while you're doing this. Is there one jingle in particular that makes you think, you know what, for what they're trying to accomplish musically and emotionally and mood, it's like they really nailed that. That was a really, really good jingle. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of really great jingle music composers, I would say, but I think for me, the best two are Barry Manilow, um, who wrote maybe my favorite jingle of all time. One for Band-Aid. I am stuck on Band-Aid, Brandon. <laughs> Band-Aid stuck on me, which I think you know is unbelievably catchy. He wrote some other famous ones too, but I think that one to me just sticks in my in my head. And then a man named Steve Carman, who wrote some really famous ones uh, for Budweiser, um, Salem cigarettes back when cigarettes could be advertised. Um, you can take Salem out of the country, but you can't take the country out of Salem. Um, and some you know really really well crafted and very very catchy uh, tunes. So there's really there's some great great musicians who wrote jingles over the years, but for m for me those two are the pinnacle. Tim Taylor, the author of The Sounds of Capitalism, Advertising Music and the Conquest of Culture. Thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Chicago Audio Works was produced at the UCLA Broadcast Studios. 
For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at press.uchicago.edu. Don't forget, there are a lot of ways to socially network with us. You can find us on the blog at pressblog.uchicago.edu, our Tumblr site, uchicagopress.tumblr.com, our Facebook page, www.facebook.com slash uchicagopress, and you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at uchicagopress. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chicago Audio Works. Copyright 2012, the University of Chicago Press, all rights reserved.